Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Crowell Amore. We're your co-hosts, Mona Lombardo and Jason Crawford, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. Today, we're joined by special guest, Caroline Lee. Caroline is a senior manager with Deloitte Financial Advisory Services, LLP, and she's a certified fraud examiner with extensive experience helping clients address critical matters involving fraud and other wrongdoing. She regularly handles matters involving the False Claims Act and is on the advisory committee of the ABA's National False Claims Act and KETAM Trial Institute. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We invited Caroline to today's podcast to discuss the various ways in which lawyers and forensic investigators work hand-in-hand in FCA litigation and investigations. Increasingly, clients are facing FCA risk that require traditional factual investigation, such as reviewing documents or interviewing witnesses to understand who knew what and when did they know it. But many of the investigations also require significant amounts of quantitative analysis to make sense of large volumes of data, such as pricing information or claim submissions. And I think it's safe to say that most lawyers feel comfortable with the first investigative component of analyzing texts and questioning witnesses, but unpacking and making sense of data is not typically in our wheelhouse. At least for me, I know there's a reason why I studied history rather than accounting. And so in these situations, it's often critical to bring the skills of a forensic investigator to the table. Caroline, can you start us off by talking about your practice? For example, when are you typically engaged in FCA-related matters? Is it usually at the same time that the lawyers are brought in? I would say most of the time the company calls outside counsel first before we are called in. Ideally, we're brought in as early as possible after the potential issue or concern comes to light. It can be helpful at these early stages to discuss data preservation. So what systems might be relevant and consider things like how far back does the active data in those systems go, whether there are backups available, and is there a backup retention policy? And how about you, Jason? What's your experience with this timing? So when we're brought in as outside counsel, we often see that a forensic accountant skill set is needed and we'll recommend it to the client that they be brought in. And I tend to agree with you that it's best when this happens early in a matter for at least two reasons. First, I think this is important so that in-house counsel can budget appropriately for the matter. And second, I think it can be more cost efficient because there are often a subset of witnesses that both the lawyers and the forensic investigators will want to talk to. And it often makes sense to do that all at once. So, Caroline, when you are engaged early in the matter, do you work with the lawyers in developing the investigative plan? Absolutely. So, ultimately, it's our client's responsibility for the sufficiency of the investigation and the plan. We can add value by providing advice and recommendations, drawing upon our specialized knowledge and experience. The investigative plan is simply a work plan, and it's a joint effort between outside counsel in-house counsel and us to clarify the objective and scope, document the tasks that will support the overall objective, and lay out the timing. It's also good at this point to lay out the dependencies so that the client understands where things could shift on timing. The biggest delays I see are due to getting data and documents, since often much of it comes from client personnel who are responding to requests above and beyond their typical day job. So it's important to bring these delays up promptly with counsel and talk through implications and alternative solutions. And then going forward, the investigative plan tends to evolve in an iterative manner based on what we learn along the way. 
The key is continuous communication between the forensic team, outside counsel, and in-house counsel to avoid surprises that can result from those delays. The other surprise that it's important to avoid is cost. So it's not always possible to anticipate at the beginning how much time and expenses will be spent. There are ways to give the client control and transparency over the run rate. Thank you for that. That's helpful. What disciplines do you typically draw upon in your practice when handling FCA matters? So this is a great question because it's actually a pretty wide field of disciplines, and that is one reason that I personally find forensic work so interesting. Certainly business, accounting, financial acumen are regularly drawn upon, as well as our broad experience conducting investigations. And then some disciplines are more segmented by industry. For example, FCA cases involving government contractors sometimes require specialized knowledge of federal acquisition regulations and cost accounting standards. For healthcare FCA cases, we may utilize our team of nurses and coding specialists. However, the one discipline that has really become more prominent over time and crosses across all industries is data analytics, particularly as companies are amassing more and more digital data. In fact, the increase in availability of data combined with advances in analytical abilities and automation has increasingly replaced the need for statistical sampling. Thanks, Carolyn. We've seen that as well. Now, another important consideration in most investigations is maintaining the attorney-client privilege. What sort of steps have you seen taken to keep the work of the forensic team under the privilege umbrella? Well, I'm sure you could have a whole series of podcasts on the topic of privilege alone. You know, it can be an issue, for example, when an internal audit becomes an investigation. And I personally think this is one reason many clients turn to outside forensic firms instead of utilizing their own resources who might not be as familiar with the concepts of attorney-client privilege and the work product doctrine. But we're not lawyers, and so that is why privilege and communication protocols are at the top of the list to ask counsel when we start a new matter. Counsel might provide guidance, for example, on the exact wording for the privilege header for marking our work product and communications. They might also provide guidance on copying certain attorneys on certain communications. I think the most important thing that we keep in mind when working under privilege is that everything we do is at the direction of counsel. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't take the lead on certain aspects of the investigation, for example, interviewing data systems owners, but it's with oversight from counsel and in conjunction with counsel. So in your experience, when there are privilege considerations, is Deloitte usually retained directly by in-house company counsel or the outside law firm? In my experience, it's more often that we are retained through outside law firms, particularly on matters that are larger, are pretty sensitive, or high profile within the company. And during the life of an investigation, in what ways are you typically interacting with those outside counsel? Are you jointly conducting interviews? We work in lockstep with outside counsel throughout the investigation in a very collaborative and iterative fashion where we are continuously sharing findings and getting feedback and direction. Generally, outside counsel reviews our work product first before going to in-house counsel to help optimize the client's time. For the interviews, I like to make sure we have a game plan with outside counsel first to make sure that there's enough preparation and structure that we can use the interviewee's time efficiently, but also keeping in mind that we might need to change course based on what we learn in the interview. The most common interviewing approach I see is where our outside counsel will kick things off, explain the purpose of the call, give the upjohn warning, and then turn it over to us to ask the more technical questions. 
and then throughout the interview, outside counsel might jump in with questions or ask some at the end. And when you reach the end, what sort of work product are you typically creating? Is it a full report or is it more common to have a high-level readout or a slide deck? Well, again, this is another area where we ask counsel what they would like, not just for setting expectations, but for also any of those privilege concerns that counsel might have. And it also depends on the purpose and use of our work. The format and presentation of our work product might take many different forms. In my experience, generally it's in the form of a slide deck because that can help facilitate the presentations we make to the different groups, including outside counsel, in-house counsel, stakeholders in the business, and then ultimately to the government if that's desired. But in any case, our work product typically has multiple layers because it also includes the supporting documentation both the source data as well as the detailed methodology that's written in a way that can be picked up and updated later. FCA matters can go on for a very long time and the government can take a while to get back to us. So we want to be able to pick up an analysis later and be able to update it as the case evolves and new information comes available. Well, let's talk about those interactions with the government that you just referenced. When an investigation is being conducted in response to a government subpoena, or CID, or if the results of an internal investigation are going to be shared with the government, how much scrutiny do you usually get from the government regarding your methodology and assumptions? Well, we don't actually always know if there's someone on the other side who will critique the details of our damages model, like if there's a counterpart like us, particularly if the matter isn't in formal litigation. This question can remain a mystery all the way up and through settlement negotiations. But there's always a chance that there is or will be an auditor, an investigator, perhaps the inspector general office, or an outside forensic firm hired by the government or relator. So I always assume there's going to be a high level of scrutiny that at some point, someone is going to scrutinize the details on everything that might eventually get turned over to the other side. And again, not just the damages model and methodology, but also the underlying source data that were used. And on that last part about turning over data, I've seen many instances where companies produce data to the government fairly early on, but actually have some blind spots about what they're producing. So they might have their IT department pull a report. It sounds pretty straightforward, but getting a good understanding about how that report was run, what was excluded, et cetera, can help mitigate issues down the road. So when I think about how to address that potential scrutiny, there is one high-level saying that I like, and it's actually from an attorney that I worked with in the past, and it simply goes, make it easy for the government to say yes. So for example, if we're in the context of settlement negotiations where we are presenting the damages methodology to the government, it's very important to present it in a clear and concise manner that is understandable and logical. We can also help make it easy by essentially preparing a cookbook that walks through our calculations step by step in case the government wants to replicate them. So what might this look like if you're negotiating with the government about damages? So backing up a little bit and thinking about what to keep in mind throughout the process of designing and creating the damages model, and then considering that at some point it will likely be scrutinized, I have three guiding principles. I want the damages model to be precise, defendable, and repeatable. For precise, the calculations should be accurate and agree with the sources. Replicating the analysis from start to finish is a good way to identify what I would call silly mistakes that would just be embarrassing. And you'd be surprised to hear that some of the most common mistakes I see are normally the simplest things. For example, once I caught just one wrong number in an adverse party's calculation, 
but it caused their damages calculation to be overstated by about a million dollars. For defendable, this is around basing the work on the facts and limiting assumptions to the extent possible. When assumptions are necessary, they should be clearly labeled, able to withstand scrutiny because they are reasonable and based on sufficient relevant data. And then the third guiding principle is that I want it to be repeatable. We expect that at some point, the government may request our underlying calculations supporting documentation and source data in addition to whatever that high-level report might be. So we want to prepare enough clear, easy-to-follow documentation that someone could independently rerun the calculations, like that cookbook. So switching gears, I want to talk briefly about a topic that you touched on earlier and that I know is near and dear to you, and that's the topic of statistical sampling. When you and I met a few years back, you and a colleague were speaking on the use of stat sampling in FCA cases, and so I know it's an issue that you've been following for some time. At a high level, can you explain how stat sampling works and how it might be used in an FCA investigation or a lawsuit? Simply put, statistical sampling is using a subset of a population to make an estimate about the broader population. It's commonly considered when it's cost prohibitive to individually analyze everything within that broader population. For example, on an FCA matter involving a healthcare provider, we might sample a subset of the claims and then our medical professionals would manually review each of those claims filed in the subset. The observation, for example, non-compliance rate on the subset of claims can then be extrapolated to estimate the non-compliance rate of the broader population. But before we move forward with statistical sampling, we ask the question, why do you want to do sampling? And consider whether the data on the broader population might actually exist somewhere such as in a backup system. But as I mentioned earlier, even if that data isn't readily available in the necessary format, we might be able to use other automated techniques to convert unstructured data into a format that can be more readily analyzed. For example, automatically extracting text from such as a set of PDFs and then organizing that text in ways that can be more fully analyzed through data analytics, or at least compiled in a way that speeds up the manual review. Ultimately, the client will decide based on a cost-benefit analysis with both input from the forensic investigators and counsel. So as you know, stat sampling has been a hotly debated issue among the FCA bar because defendants in some cases have taken the position that it's one thing to use sampling to calculate damages, but it's an entirely different thing to use sampling to prove liability because sampling sidesteps the individualized claim-by-claim proof required under the FCA. Mona, do you want to briefly touch upon where the courts are on this issue? Yeah, sure, Jason. So we've seen this issue litigated at the motion to dismiss and summary judgment stages. And to the extent any trend has emerged, courts seem to be taking the view that as a matter of law, there's nothing that precludes the use of statistical sampling to prove liability. Rather, the courts seem to consider this an evidentiary issue And it's something that can be determined on Daubert motions or at trial in the battle of experts. So on the topic of expert witnesses, we know that Deloitte also assists in helping clients with the development of economic damages models. In the FCA space, are there any reoccurring fact patterns that you're seeing, such as labor mischarging? And what steps do you take in developing a damages model? The most common fact pattern that I've personally seen relates to alleged non-compliance with discounting terms in government contracts. Sometimes this is referred to as most favored customer terms, and it can take many different shapes and forms. 
but we're comparing pricing and discounting between government customers and commercial customers. So in order to do that comparison, a key consideration is identifying apples to apples sales. Now really, since FCA is so broad and there's a wide variety of ways it can come up, there is a data mapping approach that is useful to set the stage on pretty much any damages model, no matter the fact pattern. So first understand what's the allegation and what are the related contractual requirements, then map the business functions to those contractual requirements. So for example, contracting, billing, compliance, et cetera. Then map the data sources and business processes to those business functions. And of course, this is a high level approach, but my point is that taking time upfront to understand the business functions and processes and how they drive the creation and use of data is really key to the analysis. For one, it can save time and costs in going down rabbit holes, but perhaps more importantly, developing a damages model that articulates how it reflects the business processes can lend powerful credibility in the presentation to the government. And beyond resolving the FCA matter at hand, this meeting of the minds can be a great start on a path towards a more trusted relationship between the government and the contractor and help mitigate future FCA issues. Thanks, Caroline. That's all for this episode. We want to thank Caroline for joining us today and sharing her thoughts on how forensic investigators provide support and perspectives from their specialized knowledge and experience to assist in FCA litigations and investigation. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 213-443-5563, Jason at 202-624-2562, and Caroline can be reached at 571-766-7566. We'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash podcasts. Thank you.